Well, tonight, as you know, we're in our uh, Renewing Your Mind series and continuing through some of these ways that the lies of our culture and, and even how evangelicalism has bowed the knee to many of these errors. We've been looking at those dynamics so that we can come to an understanding of what God's Word says about these matters. Tonight, I want to address the matter of real, genuine unity in the body of Christ. It's obvious that when, when um, the church stands for truth and, and then somehow there are ways that professing believers have been weakened and ministries have softened on the truth and you suddenly have in evangelicalism a group of believers standing for the truth and grounded in the truth and you have other denominations and churches uh, falling away from the sound clarity that they once stood for. When that begins to happen in evangelicalism, and there's always been that dynamic, but when it begins to happen at larger levels and even huge denominational levels, as we've seen in the last number of decades, then we have to think our way through this because what will happen is the church that stands for the truth will have all kinds of accusations come against it. You don't love unity. Your ministry is unloving. Uh, it's, um, you can't be that definitive. It's too authoritative. There's no way you can know objective truth. It's more humble to, to sort of admit that we can't really know things in the Bible with that, cert that much certainty. And so the, the church has to navigate through those kinds of accusations and come to the place where we preserve unity. And unity isn't just on the macro level where we're trying to stay firm with the faith once for all delivered to the saints while others attack the truth, but it's also on the micro level where we're talking about unity between believers in the body. And we're called in Scripture to take the unity that we have, which is given to us by God, and protect it, to guard it. Take a moment and look at Ephesians 4, and we'll jump around tonight a bit, but just, just to launch this tonight, this is a familiar passage in Ephesians 4, and we're just going to take a moment to look at it, but right here in verse 1, Paul has turned the corner now from all of his doctrine about our position in Christ and this great gift of redemption that's been given to us. And he refers to it and says that he, the prisoner of the Lord, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with, with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have here an admonition right in the center of it that 
as we're called to walk a certain way and character qualities are to be nurtured in our life, there is a diligence we are to bring to this matter of preserving our unity. Diligence, that great English translation of a word group in the original language that, that talks about a zealous energy brought to a task, like a soldier running to the forward battle line. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Later, in verse 13, he will say that as we're equipped, it is for the purpose of us reaching or attaining to the unity of the faith. There is to be a unity of our doctrine and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we're to come together in the common experience of a transformed life. That is the true knowledge of the Son of God, a transformed life, real conversion, real sanctification, and the truth is starting to become clearer and clearer to us as we study in God's Word, and that is pulling us together. And then he says, to a mature man, now the, the point is the one Lord begins to be the character that is elevated in the church. The quality of character and heart and conduct becomes the standard in the church, Christ-likeness, and we all see it as a target, and we're all moving toward it as a target in our words and our deeds and our heart. And it's to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's how we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And of course, the threat is not able then to get in, verse 14 says. You're not tossed around. Unity is always threatened. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one. Uh, churches and denominations and, and uh, quote-unquote evangelical culture has often turned the words of Jesus in John 17 into something superficial. Let's just reduce everything down to its minimum. I remember 20 years ago when there were new versions of the pragmatic church growth, big top circus movement going, and they were saying things about that verse like, do you love Jesus? That's all I care about. And they would not entertain a question as to which Jesus you were loving. And of course, thus became a threat to the unity of the faith and the unity of the church, this unguarded gospel. The Lord wants us perfected in unity. He had prayed for it to his heavenly Father that they may be one even as we. God, in his intertrinitarian relationships, is one. The Lord our God is one. He's of one essence, one will, one purpose. And so we are to be one even as the Godhead is one, verse 21 of John 17, that they may all be one even as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. There is this change of constitution. There is by the Spirit this union we have with our great God, and that is to make us one. We're not to be a people that personally are divided into factions, and we're not to grow away from one another in 
in the larger evangelical uh, world away from true, genuine believers. We're to grow close to them. We may not see every passage the same way. We may not see every area of secondary issues in the Bible the same way, but every dominant primary doctrine that Paul even lists here in Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one God and Father. These are all essential truths that we're drawn together toward and deepening in in unity the more that we become what Jesus prayed for. So what are the threats? Well, as I said, an unguarded gospel, that's a threat to our unity. Pragmatic movement filled the church with unbelievers. The gospel wasn't guarded. It was just reduced down to these silly statements. And, and then the, the church growth movement basically said, no, 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 church is for unbelievers. It's a seeker service. Just invite them in. Just bring them in. Because they're genuinely seeking, we just have to remove all the churchy stuff, and then they'll come in. That's exactly what happened. 35 years ago, maybe about 32 years ago, there were ministries that were beginning to float that idea that you send a survey out and you ask people what they want. And, and when the people wrote in what they wanted, that's what you give them because that gets people into the building. We even stopped calling unbelievers unbelievers, and we called them unchurched. And then when they got in the church, because we removed all the churchy stuff, we didn't call them believers, we called them churched. Well, I agree, they were churched in the sense that they were in the building. But the gospel wasn't guarded. That was a threat to unity. And then man-centered preaching, no more to focus on expounding God's truth because he said it. It was more uh, trying to entertain audiences with drama made up and created by cleverness and all those dynamics, human relatable stories. By the way, human illustrations have no authority. You know that. Human illustrations, not in scripture, human illustrations from my personal life have no authority. I can say something happened to me all I want to say. I can say it relates to something I think God did all I want. There's no authority in it. Only Scripture is our authority. And yet preaching kind of descended into this man-centered, sort of felt-needs-driven, find out what the people feel they want and give it to them. Well, it was just plain old consumerism. And churches flooded with people. doesn't mean they weren't genuine Christians in there. Of course there were. It doesn't mean that people weren't hungry for the truth. Many were. It doesn't mean that the sheep weren't longing for something in the body of Christ that would give them growth and those kinds of things. There were many who were like that. But over time, the man-centered, insipid preaching and teaching left the sheep malnourished. That's a threat to unity and sh Surely it did threaten unity because if you're not unifying around the faith, Paul says in Ephesians 4, then you are going to be tossed around. Well, all Satan did was just wait for enough of that weak and shallow man-centered stuff to go out to the masses. The sheep were malnourished and starved. They couldn't tell the difference after a while, and pretty soon Satan just introduces garbage. And everybody just laps it up. Well, it's faith-based. 
It has verses attached to it. That's a threat to unity. And then there's wolves among the sheep. We're warned about them in Acts 20 that they'll get in the leadership and draw disciples away after themselves. Jesus warned about them in Matthew 7. You'll know them by the fruits. They're false prophets and they will, they will be coming in. Second Peter warns about false teachers among us secretly introducing doctrines of demons. There are wolves among the sheep and they will disrupt unity. Paul warns us to stay away from them, Romans 16. That'll disrupt unity. An unguarded gospel, man-centered preaching, wolves among the sheep. And it really left the church unable to understand God from the scriptures, therefore unable to know what they believe about God in any kind of depth, unchallenged then about their sin, and so there's nothing left to do except fear your horizontal surroundings. So fear of man began to threaten the unity of the church. Fear of man's a huge threat to the unity of the church because if you fear man, you'll downplay your relationship to Christ. If you fear man, you'll try to gain the culture's respect especially the powerful in the culture. It'll soften the truth. Liberal-minded ideologies come into the church that way, and your fear of men means that you're not looking to guard the truth. You're, you're trying to find security and safety in other things. And that leads us then to a horizontal pursuit of comfort and money and material items and anything else we can get our hands on Fear of man is a threat to unity. Some ministries that maybe started out well-meaning might have found themselves where Ephesus found itself in Revelation 2. They lost their first love. That's a threat to unity. To fight for doctrine and to preach the solid truths and be definitive, but to do it out of pride and not humility, to actually not come under the doctrines that you learn when you, when you understand the sovereignty of God, to have that not actually humble you, but to puff yourself up with it, that's to lose your first love. Our first love is Christ. There's nothing, there's no way pride in us can coexist with a genuine service to Christ. Love for Christ and human pride are enemies. That's a threat to unity. A few more, if you resent authority, that's a threat to unity because everything about the Christian life is submission to the authority of God. That's how conversion happens, right? What is conversion? Conversion is a person who's a child of wrath by nature, dead in sin, Ephesians 2, whom God moves upon and regenerates and brings to life spiritually. And in that conversion, that moment when God brings the heart to life, faith and repentance happen in the believer. What is faith and repentance? I'm a sinner. I submit to what you say about my condemnation. And I submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ as my only hope. It's, you're submitting to authority from the very beginning. So if a Christian in the church chafes at authority and nurtures that, it's a threat to unity. 
worldliness, fleshliness. Paul had to write to the Corinthians. He said, you, uh, you have a bunch of factions going on in the church. And I have to tell you about it. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, I got a report of a bunch of division going on in your midst. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, he says, you're acting fleshly. You're just acting like mere humans without the Spirit of God. And so the church is going to have to have an overhaul. You're going to have to repent of your factiousness. It is interesting that in the 11th chapter of that first letter in 1 Corinthians, he says that factions do exist among you because as factions happen, those that are disunifying, those that disrupt unity are set in contrast to those who preserve it. Isn't it interesting that the preservation of unity is implied even in the church where there's some faction growing? I know that as elders, whenever some little pocket begins to rise up and we start hearing about some pocket here or there, and thankfully in our ministry it hasn't happened a ton, but now and again, as is always the case among God's people, as Satan does his work, people get stirred up and, and a little faction will grow up of a group of people that, that want to complain and gripe or, or sin against the unity of the body or whatever's going on in that group. And the first thing that as leaders we think about is this is going to demonstrate with clarity where people's hearts are. Anytime there is a contrast, a group of people preserving the unity of the Spirit and a group of people who are in sin and pushing against the unity of the Spirit, the line in the proverbial sand gets clearer as to the truth. And so Paul even says in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, there must be factions among you so that the, so that the unifiers rise to the top, paraphrasing it, so that the people who are really true believers preserving unity rise to the top. So clearly fleshliness and worldliness is a, is a threat to unity. Spiritual laziness is a threat to unity, right? If you don't put on the armor, Ephesians 6, you're not going to be protected from the fiery darts of the evil one. If you are spiritually lazy and you don't practice with discernment the ability to differentiate between good and evil, you become dull in your spiritual hearing, Hebrews 5, 13. Spiritual laziness, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13, is because you're not alert you're not girding up the loins of your mind for sobriety, as we've so often talked about. And then here in Ephesians 4, you have the matter of unresolved strife. Unresolved strife. Notice you have verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. We've looked at this passage, but notice where he goes with it. So that it will give grace to those who hear, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That has to be, because it's in this passage, it has to be a reference to the way the Spirit has unified us and we're to preserve it. But don't grieve Him by tearing it apart because you were sealed for the day of redemption by the Spirit. So verse 31, let, let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you and therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us. So our personal interaction requires that we work diligently to preserve the unity between us. A ministry that preserves unity around the faith, protects the gospel, a, a ministry that doesn't threaten the truth of Scripture and its clarity by man-centered preaching, that looks to see the fruit of someone's life so that wolves cannot get in among the sheep and tear them up, a ministry that fears God rather than man, a ministry that does what it does in the love of Christ, for the love of Christ, through the love of Christ, humbly, a ministry that reflects humility under the authority of God. We are to be a ministry that is humble, pliable, soft to the truth, and not stirring up all kinds of factions. We're not to be spiritually lazy, and we're not to have strife that's unresolved. These are all threats to the unity of the fellowship. Years ago, I read this little list for how to turn a disagreement into a feud. <laughs> See if any of this is familiar. Be sure to develop a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so you're in an explosive frame of mind. Number two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible, then the other person can't do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and you're totally right. The use of a clinching Bible verse is helpful. Speak prophetically for truth and justice and do most of the talking. Number four, with a touch of defiance, Announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate such a conversation. Number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Number six, judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. And keep a track, keep track of their angry words. Number seven, if the discussion should, alas, become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. <laughs> Don't get too many options on the table. Number eight, pass the buck. If you're about to get cornered into a solution, indicate you are without power to settle, you need time, space, a lawyer, whatever. <laughs> So let's just let's put our toes out there for a minute. You avoid conflict out of sinful fear so you never benefit from the process. And you rarely get challenged by the iron sharpening iron principle. Do you prevent getting into specifics so as to protect against exposure? To preserve the unity of the spirit, do you listen well or do you like to 
control the conversation with the assumption that the disagreement should bring about a change in the other. Do you take steps to reconcile? Or would you rather chew and stew for a while? <laughs> How about judgments? Judgments of the heart that you can't see. How about forgiving? Is it quick? Is it powerful? Is it full and complete? You set your jaw to win at all costs? What about man-centered ideas? Do you subject them to Scripture? Do you chafe at the authority and definitiveness of God's Word when it's preached and taught and counsel comes to you? If there is a rift, which is inevitable between us as differing human beings and immature as we are in our interactions, if there is a rift, do you seek peace? So let's just talk about this. Number one, run hard after peacemaking. The first principle, run hard after peacemaking. Look at verse, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, just give you some verses to study on your own, but here is the Apostle Paul talking to a new church, and he says, I want you to live in peace with one another. I want you to live in peace with one another, verse 13. Live in peace with one another. That is to be the characteristic of Christians, living in peace, working toward peace. There is to be this equal responsibility with each other is the mutual force of the terminology here, equal responsibility. Every one of us bears the weight of being peacemakers in the ministry. We're to run hard after it. Body life is so sweet when the people of God are dedicated to this. You know what's interesting? When the sheep get into a scrape, they, they often don't find it... Uh, an open door for them to go through it to make peace, and yet you expect leaders to do that. I can tell you this, in 22 years of ministry here, with a couple of minor exceptions, the men in this ministry have looked at differences and disagreements through the grid of this passion and equal responsibility to pursue peace. Sometimes people imagine that elders get together and they don't ever disagree. If it's all peaceful, we don't ever disagree. Everything must be superficial. You doing okay? Yeah. You doing okay? Yeah. Everything's copacetic then. I don't want to deal with it. But that's not the case. We're together every week, all the time. And we're talking about the ministry and the sheep, and we've got people that need help over here, and we've got doctrine that needs clarifying over here, and we've got larger things on the evangelical stage, and people are calling us and asking us questions over here, and then we've got a women's conference where we want to make sure that our ladies are cared for, and we've got men's groups, and we've got women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, fellowship groups, fellowship Bible studies, and everyone is 
looking to the Word of God to be equipped. And around the table, there are people that are falling into weakness and others that are coming to Christ and need discipleship. And on and on this goes. And around the table, we feel the weight of the equal responsibility to always pursue hard this peace, the preservation of what the Spirit has given us. I'll tell you what, the church flourishes when the leaders do that and the sheep work hard on that. It's hard to do, I know. We don't like each other sometimes in the church. We struggle with one another and we have differences and we come against one another and iron does sharpen iron. How does it sharpen it? Because when the steel scrapes together, it gets hot and friction happens. And guess what? It gets soft when it gets hot. That's how it becomes pliable. You can't have a pliable piece of metal without it getting warm. So as iron comes together and, and goes into a heated mode as it scrapes against the pieces, it's the same. So one man sharpens another. We, we go through differences and disagreements. The point here is to run hard after what makes for the preserving of peace given to us. Same Lord, same truth, same Bible, same gospel, same conversion, same spirit, same God. This God of ours wants us to be at peace. Why? Because he's a God of peace. May the God of peace be with you all, Paul closed the book of Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a very interesting passage. It's God and his victory over Satan and the eschatological reality that Satan's going to be done with. And what does he call God in that kind of verse? You would think it would say the God of power, the God of almightiness, the God of sovereign wisdom, the God of supremacy. No, the God of peace. Yeah, he's... He's the God of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Listen to this. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Right. We manifest God when we're a people at peace. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, down near the end of the chapter... Now may the God of peace, verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is, the God of peace, sanctifying us. Great benedictory comment in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will. And may he do it working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the God whom we claim. What would it be like if we're in the throes of of a moment or a season in a faction and we're unwilling to run hard after the pursuit of peace and our God of peace shows up right there and we say, oh, I'm, I'm your child. 
I'm a God of peace. I made peace. I brought you to peace. I want to sanctify you entirely. You should be running hard after peace. That's right. Peace. Look at Philippians 2, very familiar. You can hardly look at the matter of unity without what Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians as just another reference to study. If you want to make Paul, the pastor, have a complete joy, it comes from an appeal to the grace of God in our lives, right? That is verse 1. You have the grace of God in your life, and based upon the grace of God in your life, which has given you encouragement in Christ, it's consoled you in His love, it has brought the resources of the koinonia of the Spirit, and it has resulted in true affection and compassion for God and therefore for others. And since that's the grace of your life, then if you want to make Paul's joy complete, be of the same mind, that is to say, conviction. Christ-centered convictions, maintaining the same love. Christ-centered affections, that is to say sacrificial love, not feelings of affection. Those cannot be trusted, but sanctified affections that come from a sanctified, pure love for Christ that lays my life down for my Lord, yes, maintain that. And motives united in your whole person, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It means motives that are centered on Christ. You want to make Paul happy, he says to the Philippians. Therefore, if you want to make any church leader happy, if you want to make anyone in your sphere of influence experience complete joy, then what are your convictions? Are they based on the things of Christ? then we ought to be moving toward one another with the same mind. Are they about human opinions and fleshly tendencies, or are they about the, the sacrifice that we give to Christ because we love him, having experienced his love for us? So we maintain the same love. That ought to pull us together in unity. And our motives, man, this speaks of every reason we do what we do, united inside. United in spirit, that is the inner person. My motives, my thoughts, my desires, my interests, all of it ought to be coming together with you as we are coming together around what pleases Christ. And then he just puts the exclamation point on it in verse 3. Then therefore don't do anything from selfishness. I mean, could, could we just camp there and get crucified again? Do nothing from selfishness. That ever happened today? Anybody? How about in the parking lot? Anything from selfishness at all? How about at home? How about with your spouse? How about with your children? How about with your parents? Your grandparents? How about with the neighbor? How about with that car that pulled in front of you? How about at the grocery store? People are annoying and do nothing from selfishness. How about your time devoted to the Lord? How about the way you listened to the sermon? How about the way you prayed? Did you sing the songs with a heart for Christ? What about 
uh, the counsel that you needed, but you avoided the person that was going to give you counsel because you don't want to hear it. What about all that? Do none of those things that are out of selfishness. Instead, with humility. With humility in your convictions. He says, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's how you run hard after peacemaking. Number two, let peace with God rule your inner life or your heart. Let peace with God rule your heart. You know, it's interesting. We are only able to deal with ourselves. That's what Paul said in Romans 12, 18. Insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He will say in Romans 14, 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up with one, of one another. I have a, an agenda every day of my Christian life to pursue the things which make for peace and edification of someone's life. I am to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the growth in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's right. Christians will only see the Lord because they are true believers and true believers pursue peace with all men and holy living. That's our everyday agenda. And so what is behind this pursuit? What energizes it? Our peace with God. So Romans 5 says we have peace with God and we stand in grace. That state never stops. What about you? But it's, a, it's always been a motivation in my Christian life. Certainly never enough because I don't love the Lord as much as I ought. But it's always struck me in Romans 5 how much of a motivation that is. I stand in my entire life, every day of my life, every moment of my life in a state of grace. And in that grace, I have peace with God. Why does God put such a high premium on that peace? Because without that peace, there is only enmity between me and the Creator. And because He is holy, when the threshold of humanity is done and I cross it, I face a judge with whom I have no peace. And He must judge. So peace with God is the richest gift. It's the most precious gift. I couldn't earn it. You and I can't earn it. We didn't do anything to get it. It was given to us because we stand in sovereign grace. And so that is to be our motivation. Look at Colossians chapter 3, just one book over. You know this text. It's a favorite So in verse 12, so then as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, there's, there's your grace, your sovereign grace. We are holy and beloved. That's monumental. God considers us his beloved. If that's who you are, then put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. This is very parallel to Ephesians 4 that we were reading. Put on these heart, attitudes, and dispositions, 
bearing with one another and forgiving each other, again, parallel to Ephesians 4, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, here it is, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Here's what preserves unity, is the putting on of these dispositions and beyond all of those dispositions, put on this, this macro disposition, this drivetrain disposition of love, which is the perfect bond of unity, right? The Holy Spirit shed his love abroad in our hearts so we know how to love like Christ. We can love like Christ. And then look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This does not mean a settled sort of sensation in your life. Oh, I have peace with God. I have a peace about it. Yeah, yeah, I have a peace about this relationship. Yeah, you know, we made things right. I have a peace about it. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a subjective peace. Let the peace of Christ, it is, it is a construction that literally is the peace that we have with Christ, the peace given to us between us and Christ, us and God. This peace we have with our Creator, with our Savior. Let the peace that has been given to us between us and Christ rule in your hearts. And it is a term that means to arbitrate. So when I get into trouble, when I'm having difficulty with someone or something, when, when I have this struggle with another person and unity is going to be threatened, I am to think about the peace I have with God given to me by a sovereign God, the peace I now have with Christ, my Savior, and I'm to let that peace, which has been a gift initiated by Him, so profoundly powerful and eternally influencing, I'm to let that become the rule book for my conflict with someone else. That becomes the backdrop, the playbook, it becomes the drive, the motivation, how it's to be done, why it's to be done. It's because I have peace with Christ. And so that becomes the arbitrator of my conflicts with anyone else that might threaten unity. So as you're running hard after peace because we serve a God of peace, you are to let the peace you have with God influence and affect and dominate your disposition. It's to dominate your life. It's to dominate it. Let the peace of Christ rule inside you. And notice, to which indeed you were called in one body. Man, can you imagine a body of believers where the normal differences happen and the natural friction comes and the differences collide and two people or two parties are pursuing as hard as they can the reflection of the peace of God because he's a God of peace. That's his character. And in the gospel, he's made us stand in grace, therefore we have peace with God. People are running hard after that peace and pursuing it insofar as it depends on them. They're, 
initiating it, calling for it, praying about it, thinking about it, pursuing it, working to relate to that individual or that group, ministering, dealing with their own heart. And then when they get together, both sides are looking at the peace they have with Christ. How did it come about? He initiated it. So I'm going to initiate love toward you. He brought about the peace that we have between God through his sacrifice. So I'm going to sacrifice for you. He did it out of a kind of love that was for enemies. He died for us while we were still enemies. So you don't need to be lovable. You don't even need to be the same as me pursuing peace as zealous as me. I still am going to pursue it. Can you imagine if that were ruling our conflict? There would there would be what Archibald Alexander said, an atmosphere in which quarrels die a natural death. I love that. Go back over to Ephesians 4. Verse 32, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Notice chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Just as, just as you've been redeemed by God, in all the ways he's revealed to you, then treat others with the same redeeming attitudes, words, and deeds. As beloved children. The implication is that our pursuit of unity and our practice of the, the love of Christ ruling in our hearts and the peace of Christ being the arbiter, all of that should be as living and abiding as it is in our Savior who gave it to us who gave us spiritual birth. We are to mimic God, emulate him. He's our model. There's your high-end motive that drives your thoughts and attitudes toward the preservation of unity. If you... If you don't pursue hard this peace that is given to us by God, and if it isn't the arbiter of your struggle and your disputes, you're going to lose perspective about the kindness of God in salvation and saving grace. You're going to begin to put conditions upon unity that are arbitrary and human. I'm not going to unify because you have not done enough to open the door. I'm not going to reach out because it's too hard to reach out. I'll wait. I'm not going to pursue peace because you're not pursuing peace. I see so much harm and hurtfulness in what you do that that becomes the justification for me not to pursue. And your heart's going to rise in its disunifying practice. 
On the other hand, if you let the peace of Christ rule and you pour out your heart to God in thanksgiving and you think of God as the prototype just as he has done these things to us, we are to do them to those in the body to preserve this unity, then you will be, your heart will come beyond resentments and you'll no longer justify the old prejudices. The burden that's on your heart will give way to the sufficient grace of God and all those hardened grudges will soften into forgiveness. So run hard after peacemaking. Let peace with God rule your heart. Number three, stop strife in its tracks. Stop strife in its tracks. Notice verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Rid your life of them. We have looked at that passage many times. I want you to look at Matthew 18 for a moment. Just because it is one of the most powerful parabolic moments in Jesus' life. He told a parable and it is... Every time your heart is tempted to hold something against someone, I encourage you to open Matthew 18 and read it again. And know that it is from the Lord. And we don't have time to cover all the ground, but just for a moment, Peter had said, and I'm sure this had reference to people in his old life that were probably looking at him now as this guy who abandoned you know, human relationships for this guru that they were following around the country and maybe even in the relationships within the, the men whom Jesus had chosen, you know there was all kinds of strife and bitterness and jealousy and they were immature and in ways that we often experience. And so Peter says to Jesus, I need, I need to know, how are we supposed to think about the limits of this unity-preserving attitude we're supposed to have? Forgiveness. What are the limits? How often? Verse 21. How often am I going to have to experience my brother sinning against me and I'm called to forgive him? And of course, you know, he, he just sort of exaggerated the Jewish standard a bit. He was being generous. And Jesus hyperbolically gives no limit. I don't say to you seven times or up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And why do I say that? For this reason. Because the kingdom of heaven, that is citizens of the kingdom, the people of God, who have peace with God, who name the name of Christ, who profess to know Christ. When people come into Grace Emmanuel, they know from the reading of the scripture to the opening, from the opening prayer, to the songs we sing, to the sermon that's going to be preached, to the fellowship groups and the conversation, we profess Christ. And so if they get in long enough and they start to see us doing the opposite of what Jesus is going to say here, 
That's a problem because the citizens of the kingdom, those that will come into his earthly glory in the eternal state and the intermediate kingdom, those who will reign with him on the earth and go into eternity with Christ, citizens of that kingdom. Jesus says, here's why I'm telling you 70 times 7, unlimited, full of compassion, lavish, because the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this little parable like a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he'd begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. I mean, the staggering amount in the minds of the hearers of the story would have been, that is a ridiculous number. Since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. It didn't mean to suggest that he could actually make the payment. The point was that he deserves nothing until repayment's made, so he and his wife and children are gone and all of his belongings. And that won't even do it because he's locked up. And so he fell to the ground. The scene in the story is so dramatic the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before the king, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. What a nonsense. Patience with what? You're going to die before you pay that kind of debt back. You have no ability. But he is pleading. The Lord of that slave felt compassion. And released him and forgave the debt. The Lord of that slave can do with him what he wants, when he wants. The slave owes it. There's no getting out of it. It counts to be settled. He's Lord of the slave. He can sell them. He can sell the slave and his family and take his belongings and hold him until the end of his life. He can do all of that because he's Lord of the slave. But the story just jolts you. He felt compassion and he released him and forgave the debt. He didn't even come up with a payment plan. It's done. It's wiped away. Go on. I'll absorb it all. I'll pay for it all. But the slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Such a puny amount. By comparison, it's nothing. Nothing. It's of no value. But that slave seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Look at the shock. Jesus in the story says that that fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, have patience with me and I'll repay you. The words should have rung in his ear. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Such a small amount, but imprisonment for such a small amount? I mean, the illustrations in it, none of it is an actual story. The story has one threading point that Jesus is working toward, but every little image in here is so familiar and striking. Such a small amount, you threw him in prison? Are you kidding? He could go borrow that from his family and pay it. It's an insignificant amount. And that's the same slave who had something he couldn't pay without losing his whole family and his belongings for the rest of his life, and it was wiped off the books like that? 
just offends the mind, which was Jesus' whole point. And when his fellow slaves saw what happened, verse 31, they were deeply grieved, came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. I love that. These fellow slaves were deeply grieved. They saw it. They saw it. They were his fellow slaves. They must have trembled when he went before the king. And they must have been stunned to see the king forgive it if you're just sort of adding details to a parable for a moment in your mind's eye. And there is fellow slaves deeply grieved at this. It's egregious. It makes no sense. It would be offensive. Listen, beloved, the point of the parable then starts to hit us. If you have been forgiven like that, how in the world could you be so incongruous as to not pursue peace? And summoning him, his Lord said to him, you Wicked slave. Here it is. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? The whole point is comparative. He was forgiven his debt from that moment on, having had his complete debt released, Every little other debt owed to him is done. It's off the books. It's gone. They would be legitimate debts, right? You sin against me, you owe me something from a human perspective. But it's gone. Why? Because I stand in grace. Currently, I stand with my debt forgiven. I don't hold anything as if you owe me personally a pound of flesh. I can't release you from your consequences of your sin before God, then I, I can't make you do anything about your sins against others and the debts you incur. But I know inside of me, I stand utterly forgiven. And just like the king said to this slave, should you not then on that basis have released all those debts? Should you not have released them? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. <laughs> Verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The sign of a Christian, the citizenship of the kingdom looks like Jesus says it looks here. When you have been forgiven your debt, then out of that grace that's been given to you comes this compassion for others. That stops strife and disunity in its tracks. It stops it in its tracks. In our ministry, there are macro threats and micro threats. The macro threats we deal with with the Word of God, we preach, we clarify the truth, we come together and open our Bibles and talk about the truth. And as we've looked at in our series, we contend for the truth, uh, but we do it in love. We speak the truth in love, so we're not sinfully contentious. 
And so we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the macro level. We protect the gospel, right? We make sure that the gospel is guarded. We make sure that there's no man-centered ministry or philosophy of ministry or preaching or man-centered discipleship. We look for the fruits of someone's life so that we can also identify the wolves among the sheep that Satan introduces secretly. We seek to encourage one another in the fear of God rather than the fear of man. We seek to be humble in how we defend the truth and guard the doctrine so that we're doing it out of true love for Christ and not threatened that our lampstand will be taken away because we've lost our first love. We don't want to become like that. But then on the micro level, just in our relationships, we are to never resent the authority of Scripture, but it is to soften us. That's how we preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The writer of Hebrews even says that about your response to the Word of God through the leaders that Christ has given to the church. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I don't, I don't hear evangelicalism doing a lot of expositions on Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who give an account for your soul and do this happily give them joy in it don't give them any grief in it which which doesn't go well for you the passage says we're to, we're to come under authority the authority of scripture not personal authority leaders have no personal authority over you but the word of god in the in the mind and in the heart and in the mouth of a leader affirmed in their character to preach it to you that's that's to be what we come under submissively, that preserves the unity of the Spirit. And we're not to be fleshly and worldly. We're not to let strife reign. We're not to be spiritually lazy. We're not to have strife go unresolved. So we run hard after peacemaking. We let the peace of God arbitrate our challenges and difficulties, the peace we have with Christ. We let that be the influence and the driver. And then we do what it takes to stop strife in its tracks. Like Ephesians says, we put off all those, those terrible things, the anger and resentment and contempt and malice. We put them all away and we put on kindness and tenderheartedness and we... We think about what we've been forgiven and we release our right to judge or get payment from anyone on a personal level because of the compassion shown to us. When you go to help someone with their sin, when you go to spend time with someone to resolve an issue, when you have to go and come alongside someone, you can't take away the consequences of their life if they're not going to pursue peace with you. If, and so far as it depends on you, you pursue it. You can't control them. They might have to come under the chastening of the Lord in a severe way, but you run hard after it, and you stop any strife in its tracks by your willingness, your pursuit, your disposition, and your forgiveness. If we do that, the unity we have in the Spirit is preserved strengthened, manifest. And when the world sees it, it 
It literally captivates them for the sake of their hardening against it or their being completely broken by it. How can that group of people have such a, a unified conviction, a unified heart, unified affections, unified love for Christ? How can that be? And when they come and get in our midst, they see that we're not perfect people. We're just as flawed. But we're all moving toward maturity in Christ. And unity is not threatened. We have work to do, don't we? Let's bow together. Lord, thank you. We have so many ways that you are giving us great challenge and testing our hearts, both on the personal relationship level and then as a church within evangelicalism, we, we see so much strife and unresolved matters. Some can't be resolved because the truth is being defended and others are defecting from it. And there we will humbly take our stand. Others are in the friction of fleshliness. And Lord, I pray that as a church we would, we would work and strive diligently in your grace to preserve what we have by your Spirit. There's no reason why we could for any reason or should for any season come to the place where if someone saw us, they, they wouldn't know what, what we have unity in regarding the truth. We, we don't want a season where all they see is pettiness and the struggle and moving toward compromise or worldly thinking or man-centered ideas. Help us to stand for truth, but also to preserve the unity we've been given so that we may all be one in Christ and for Christ. Thank you that you give us eyes to see these things if we will search your truth and bow to it. And may we be a, a church that, that loves to reflect upon what we have been given at the cross and then we delight in pardoning the offenses of others. That would be a precious thing in our hearts and for our assembly to stay unified in those things. Strengthen us to that end, we pray, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for your glory alone, we ask you for these things. Amen.